Welcome back to Podcast Recovery, everyone. We're your hosts, David O. And Eric V. Today we are uh, joined by our special guest, Pamela. How are you doing today? I'm great, thank you. How are you guys? Doing well. Doing Good. well. Yeah. I know it's like... We, we probably shouldn't reference a date, but it's it's we the new sh- year. We shouldn't reference a date because this will not be out until March something. Whatever. Yeah. You're listening to this in March. Happy New Year. Yep. Um, Happy New Year. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so where are you from, Pamela? I Well, I'm originally from Warren, Michigan, and I now live in Cincinnati, Ohio, six months out of the year. And then he weighed in Michigan, which is northern Michigan, for six months out of the year. Nice. And when were you first introduced to recovery? So I would say it was first, I got sober on July 15th, 2014. And two days later, I was in a 28 day rehab and that would be where it would begin. So on July 17th of 2014. Nice. And so how long have you been sober? I have been sober um, almost five and a half years. I'm about 10 days short of the half, so over five years. Awesome. Well, that is that is sincerely awesome. All right. Um, well, with all that out of the way, we're going to turn the story over to you. So take it away. Okay. Thank you, guys. So my name is Pamela Pesta. I'm a recovering alcoholic. Um, I... I probably knew I was an alcoholic my whole life, but I was able to stave it off for a very long time while I was raising my twin boys, which I'm grateful for. Um, It started taking its toll on me when I was about 45. They were in high school was when it really started to escalate. And I'd like to tell it like this. So what I was doing was I was drinking over everything that happened to me through my, you know, my past. Mm -hmm. And I was going back as far as, you know, I take a shot of vodka and I would remember that when I was two years old, I had eye surgery and they removed half the muscle out of my eye. And I had these ugly thick glasses and, and I knew I was different. Mm -hmm. And I, I knew I was different when I was two and three and four with these Coke bottle glasses. And so immediately I told myself, I, you know, and I realize all this in, in, as I'm in recovery and as I'm in rehab, getting counseling, this is all coming out. Mm-hmm. And I, I realized, you know, that I think the bottom line in my life was that I always felt different. I wasn't a part of, of, I, of everyone else. I felt that mm-hmm. way. So it's interesting because realizing that I I felt different with these glasses and so on at the age of two, I really knew I was different because when I was six and in first grade and Ms. Tokarski was um, locking me in the coat room because I didn't know how to do my math problems, I thought it was different, not because she was just a mean human being. Mm. And that is where everything probably started and I never just never grasped that um, I was like other people I thought I was different um, and that kind of trans transformed throughout my um, grade school years I had friends my sister as a matter of fact just told me you always had a lot of friends but I really never felt like I did mm-hmm. and then I made it into cheerleading and yet I was the ugly cheerleader because I still had those glasses and I don't know why I was a cheerleader. So I'm always talking to myself. Mm. And I think that's one of the things I want to discuss too is our minds are always telling us something negative when we're in addiction. And my mind, I didn't understand it, but I always would sell myself short. Always, no matter what I did, or how I handled it, um, it was a negative. Mm-hmm. And so when I was in high school, I started um, doing drugs a little bit, but mm-hmm. the alcohol was the, I loved the alcohol. Yeah. Because when I would drink, I fit in with everyone else because it, it made me feel that way. Mm-hmm. And through my story, and as 
as I was started to join this group where we used to call them the burnouts, <laughs> which that's what they called the buggies. We were, they were called the burnouts. This was in the seventies. And um, yeah. I finally felt like I was really part of a group. Like I was accepted. I got contact lenses, got a boyfriend. I, and, and for the first time in my life, so I'm drinking, but I feel accepted. Mm-hmm. And and in that acceptance, suddenly within six months, my family decides to move to Cincinnati, Ohio, when I'm almost 17 years old. Mm. And everything I knew from growing up in a basically middle class, working class neighborhood to moving to Cincinnati to a richer, more elitist neighborhood, mm-hmm. the transition catapulted me into... Uh, a senior year of, of never going out, of isolating. Now, I wasn't drinking at that point, but mm-hmm. I was isolated and lamented and and just couldn't understand how I had gotten there. Yeah. So my mom um, wanted me to go to college. She was a big force that someone in the family was going to go to college, and I ended up going to Xavier University, and I um, paid for my education. I worked every day, mm-hmm. but I knew I wasn't the other kids because the other kids parents were paying for everything and they didn't have to work yeah or so i thought i was the only one so <clears throat> there was where the alcohol helped mm-hmm. so when I, I would drink all the time because then i could feel like i was part of that group like yeah. i was one of them it was kind of a fantasy actually mm-hmm. so I managed to drink my way through college. Believe it or not, I got a three two five. Don't know how I did it, nice. and um, <laughs> and um, and then ended up um, getting out of college. Uh, worked for a newspaper. Uh, ended up marrying my uh, the guy that I dated in college. It was great. Got married. He had uh, twin boys about 14 months after we got married. And um, what was happening was some of the things that were coming up were, I so wanted my children not to have any pain or suffering. Mm -hmm. I was entirely geared to that. Now, during this time though, when they were little, I I would go out and drink, like if my parents kept them over for the weekend or whatever, whatever. but I wasn't, you know, drinking during the day. I wasn't, um, going down that road mm-hmm. and the counselor actually at the rehab that I was at explained to me that sometimes the mother bear instinct overrides the alcohol instinct for a while. Yeah. And apparently that's what happened. And so when they were in high school and pretty self-sufficient, I was writing a world war two novel at the time. And there was this one afternoon where I decided to kill off one of my um, characters and I thought, you know what? I'm going to have a glass of wine as I kill him off. Uh-huh. So I had a glass of wine. That's kind of that. that's kind of dark. I'm going to I'm going to drink while I kill off this imaginary character. <laughs> exactly. It'll make it easier you know, that way. <laughs> <laughs> but it kind of opened the door mm-hmm. to day drinking for me. You know, and it was a good excuse to say, well, I killed William off, so, you know, I can do this again tomorrow when I keep writing. You killed William? How could you? He was so integral to the story. (laughs) And amazingly enough, that's one of my kids' names. Ooh, that that got really dark. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So... That really opened the door, though, mm-hmm. to the afternoon drinking, and then I would try to sober up when the, my boys were in sports, so they wouldn't get home to like six at night. So I'd drink and then stop about four thirty, you know, curtail it, then start to drink like at nine, and you know, you play that control <sighs> game for a very long time. Yeah. Um, then they went off to college, and all bets were off because I had the house free. I could mm-hmm. hide behind writing my book, and everything escalated from, you know, that glass of wine to the bottle of wine to the pint of vodka, and eventually to the fifth of vodka a day, mm-hmm. believe it or not. And I have all but one. <laughs> Excuse me. Mm-hmm. Um. And what I just want to say about that is, you know, it was always my mind talking to me, like telling me, you know, see, now you're a loser. What, you know, 
you can't even control this. Mm. And you, I became desperate and dark. And by the end of my drinking, I mean, I did not even go out of the house hardly. My husband had tried several interventions. Nothing seemed to work. Mm-hmm. And my kids ended up graduating from college. So this just goes to show that was already four years of this going on. Yeah. And then it escalated some more, and that's when it became the fifth a day. And there, and and this is where I knew uh, this one day. You know, I'm hiding bottles. I'm looking for bottles. I'm desperate. I'm living in this bleak crawl space of inhumanity, and I can't understand how it is that I got there. Here, I had worked hard, got through college. Yeah, but you know, I have a perfect resume life if you looked at it on paper, mm-hmm. and how that a bottle could could ruin everything and and I could not stop for the sake of anybody. Mm-hmm. I just couldn't no matter how hard they pleaded. And there was this one summer afternoon or maybe spring afternoon I remember I decided I can't live without alcohol but I don't know what it would be like to live without it either and I don't know how to deal with that. And so I put my car in the garage. I put the bottle like right on the table near in the garage, shut the garage door, put the ignition, key in the ignition and sat in the car and I'm crying. Mm. And I'm you know already wasted and I'm crying. And then I get back out to let the dog out in case the gas would seep into the house and kill him. I mean, I was like cognizant of that. Mm. And then I get back in the car and I sat there probably for over an hour. And I'm just crying. And I thought, all of a sudden, I'm like, what am I doing? Oh, my God, what am I doing? And I get back out and um, pull the car back out. And I'm shaking. And I just, I mean, I know that, like, I am really on death's door at this point. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm wanting to die. I'm sure you guys, I I feel like every alcoholic I know has come to that moment. Mm -hmm. Do you agree? Oh, yeah. So... It was probably about a month or two later, and at this point, I can't even tell you what I was drinking. Um, It was out of control. I had bottles hidden all over the house, and my husband had tried everything, and he pretty much was just living his own life, you know, very sad for me, still with me, wanting me to get better, but just kind of letting me go, living together, you know, what Mm -hmm. else could he do? Yeah. And it was a Friday night, and I remember I don't know what I drank, and I passed out at 9 o'clock. And then that Saturday morning, I remember I woke up, and I was shaking and cold, hot, vomiting. I probably should have gone to the hospital, and I didn't. And my husband and our one son had moved back here for a little while, would bring me water. That was it. I slept for 36 hours, got up that Sunday. And the first thing I did was crawl out of bed and look for a bottle. Mm. And I found a little bit of vodka left, went to the liquor store, got another bottle. That ran out, and that was a Sunday night. And then I drank out of what I would call the family vodka bottle Mm. that we had in the pantry. Uh Drank out of there and poured water in it so that they wouldn't know that I had drank out of there. And that Monday, my son came home from work and said, Mom, Dad and I know you put the water in the vodka bottle. And I looked at him, and of course I started screaming, No, I didn't. You're a liar. I went outside to smoke a cigarette. He followed me out. Mom, Mom, something is wrong, really deeply wrong with you. Then I um, came back in the house, and I just looked at him, and I said, Nick, call dad. I'm already drunk. I need to go to rehab. And that was my bottom. My bottom was simply that my son telling me that I had put water in the vodka bottle. Mm -hmm. So I I got into rehab within within two days. Um, I drank everything I could that night before, you know, two days before I left drank everything that was left in the house. And I went to this amazing rehab, the Ridge of Ohio, and there they had a counselor. And um, it was just a great, a great rehab. I, I 
totally recommend it. It saved my life. And that was where I learned um, about what I was drinking over, all the hauntings of my past, and also about the chattering mind of an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. And that we're always telling ourselves the negative and we're always slapping ourselves around. And I kind of call it the battle for our soul. You know, I always felt like I was in the battle for my soul. I, I needed to get back to life, to the land of the living. And somehow it just, I couldn't do it. And so in rehab, it was explained to me that we, we do do this. We kind of talk to ourselves. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. And, you know, what I found out is that I didn't believe it at first. I thought, oh, come on. You know, because, you know, you're always like, when you first go to rehab, first of all, you're totally detoxing anyway, so mm -hmm. you're not really thinking clearly. But as time progressed, I realized that I do do talk to myself. I did talk to myself. I still talk to myself, mm -hmm. which is why going to AA meetings helps me. It gets that mind to just stop talking. Mm -hmm. And I realized that there was a whole bunch of other people in the world that also talked to themselves that way. And I, 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 my first AA meeting, I'll never forget it. Um, the, the rehab took us to meetings each day. Mm -hmm. And that was the first day I went and I said, my name's Pam. I'm an alcoholic. I remember feeling that freedom. Like it's finally out, it's finally out. This is who I am. Mm -hmm. And listening to everybody else talking about their chattering mind. And it, it just, I, I kind of felt like I was finally home. Like I was with the people who under, could finally understand me. Mm -hmm. Because it's so hard to explain to a normal drinker because they're like, well, what do you mean? Yeah. And, you know, it's just, I'm always talking to myself. So the one thing... Um, when I was in rehab, my counselor directed me to, she thought a good way for me perhaps when I got out of rehab was to write. And she would say, maybe you should write down what you're thinking at that moment when you want to drink. Mm. And I started just jotting down like old memories. I started jotting down like, oh my gosh, I remember when, you know, I put, I wrote about when I put the car in the garage. I wrote about when I would get the cold shoulder from my family. I wrote about, you know, lacking out. And then as time progressed and I worked with my sponsor, um, with my sponsor, I started doing the steps. I was a diligent AA person and still am. Mm -hmm. But I did 90 meetings in 90 days. Mm -hmm. I, I, I just, I had to be free. I had to get free. I could not live in that, that, bleak crawl space anymore. I couldn't do it. It was dark in there. Mm -hmm. And so I did everything everybody told me to do. I asked questions. Um, I really want people to know that when you're just starting out, you know, listen to what people have to say, follow the direction if you can, because it truly does help mm -hmm. and it does save you. You know, I used to think, oh, one day at a time, how silly is that? But you know what? It works. Yep. So what I ended up doing, so I'm writing down, um, you know, some of my bad memories of when I was drinking. And then, like, within a month or so, I started writing down the good stuff. I'm drinking coffee in the morning and I'm watching the sunrise. I hadn't seen the sunrise in forever. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm able to fry an egg and I'm not repulsed by the smell. Yeah. I'm not running to the bathroom to let go of my insides. Mm-hmm. Um, I talked about the one thing I was always amazed at myself about is that I could put myself through every morning, getting up, getting a glass of water, throwing up, Ugh. drinking coffee, looking for the bottle, trying to figure out what you did last night, mm. drinking some more, going to get some more liquor. You know, that was like a daily routine. Yep. And your body is being totally tarnished mm -hmm. and you know it and you keep doing it. Mm. And it's almost mesmerizing that we keep doing the same thing each day. Oh, yeah. And we know everybody knows 
We know they're all talking about us and we just don't care. Mm. And I think that's the desperate darkness part of this disease is no matter how many people love you and they're trying to help you, you continue on like that. Yep. Um, the one thing I did learn and I, um, and through all this is that with the relapse, I watched a friend of mine. Um, he took me under his wing when I first came in AA. He was 20 years sober and kind of stopped going to meetings, married a woman and wasn't going to meetings as much anymore and so on. And he went back out and he died of alcoholism Ooh. 20 years later. Mm. So I, at that point, I realized that this is my disease for my life, for a lifetime. And I have to make sure every day I'm praying, I'm doing the work to stay sober. Mm -hmm. It doesn't ever go away. It eases. I mm -hmm. have no obsession. I don't even want to drink. But, you know, there's danger. Um, so as I was writing all these little pages, just pages of notes, all of a sudden I had this idea about, 90 meetings in 90 days, do a 90-page book. What if I did a book? Hmm. And what I did was I turned my writing into Letting Go of the Thief, the book. Nice. And it's and what it focuses on, and I just want people to understand this, is that it's the battle of our minds, too. It's not mm -hmm. just the drinking. Mm -hmm. It's telling yourself that you're okay or you're not okay. Mm -hmm. and learning to forgive yourself. So I think that's so important. Mm -hmm. um, I do want to say this, too. I don't know what time it is, but, um, yeah, so I'm just going to finish, and then we can have our half hour. Mm -hmm. um, I just want to say this, that so there are the promises, and, there, and your life does transform, and my life transformed, um, pretty, you know, quickly, sometimes not so quickly, but I, I will tell you one of the miracles was, is I, I used to drink over this because I wanted so badly to get back to Michigan and I wanted a place in Northern Michigan and I, it's just where I wanted to be. It was where my soul was. Mm -hmm. And on my one year sobriety day, we closed on a cottage in Northern Michigan. Cool. And that's a gift. Mm -hmm. So... Um, I am so grateful to be sober. I would not change it for the world. I live in the land of the living and I'm helping other people. I have three sponsees. I do the work and I'm grateful and I've made so many amazing friends and it's living in the light. It's living on the sunny side and I would much rather be on the sunny side than the dark side any day of the week. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. so. Awesome. Well, we definitely have some questions for you. Um, Eric, okay. do, you, do you want to start or would you like me to start? You can go ahead. Okay. It's fine. Okay. All right. Um, all right. I wanted to talk about uh, my first question is going to be sort of about your bottom. Um, I've always liked the uh, saying that you're, everybody reaches their bottom when they stop digging. And um, I, th I think that's a really poignant statement because everybody's – Everybody's bottom is different, and and like yours was just um, your son telling you that you had put water in a vodka bottle, and then other people's it, it's in a gutter somewhere. So, um, right? How how important is it in recovery to not compare your using or your bottom to other people? Oh, I think it's very important not to compare. Because we're all unique in our addiction, and we all do things differently in our addiction. And then, but the one common denominator is that we end up at some point knowing that we can no longer live like that. Mm -hmm. Whether it's the gutter or pouring water in a vodka bottle, it doesn't matter. It's whatever unique to you. So there is no reason to compare. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right, Eric, what have you got? All right, so kind of we'll we'll continue kind of on that theme of comparing. Um, you were talking about your bottom and you know how the you know the 
putting water in a vodka bottle, which, you know, I have done that many a times as when I was growing up, but... See, I would just throw away the bottle, and they'd be like, what happened to the bottle? I'm like, I don't know. It's no, gone. No, no, I, I, I would fill it up. Um, no, that was like... I never did that I, shit. Oh, yeah, it would happen, and then they'd be like, what? Why does this taste like water? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe you drink too much. It's crazy. Maybe you have a problem. Um, <laughs> but kind of looking at your bottom, and like, just good... Not not from like a comparison standpoint, but just from an internal standpoint. How do you remind yourself that your bottom is enough and that you didn't have, you know, you, you hear about these stories when you're in the rooms and, you know, about these amazing flame outs and, you know, just things going completely off the wall and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, how are you internalizing your bottom and making sure that like, this is my bottom, I'm okay with it. And that I don't need some crazy story to personify the end of my active addiction or alcoholism. That's a good question. Right. You know, I used to be initially when I when I was in rehab and I would hear other people's bottoms. I mean, you know, there was someone in there with six DUIs. There was a, you know, he was a doctor. There was someone. I mean, they had some serious like ramifications. Mm-hmm. And, you know, here I am, like, when they wanted me to tell mine, I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is so, like, petty. I felt, mm-hmm. you know, petty. My son, you know. But my counselor took me aside because I said, told her I was embarrassed. And she's like, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what the story is, what the bottom is. Um, you know, we're all so different. We all lead different lives. We all live in different places, different financial, you know, we're all different. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, my bottom, the reason I think it was my bottom, because as a mother, because I always felt like I tried to be a really good mother, to have your child, well, he was 24 or 25, I can't remember, but tell you that, it's like, it's like he was the dad and I was the kid. Yeah. So that's where, that's, I think, what happened there. All right. Um, my question is a, a little bit deeper into your to your uh, your drinking and your, like your you're using. Um, was there was there a point where you started to think you had a problem and uh, like how did that like internal monologue? Because like you hit it right on the head. Like I think a lot of addicts have that internal monologue where we're talking to ourselves in our own voice and we're our own like worst enemy. Um, but like during, during that active using, was there a point uh-huh. where that voice started to think or like started to say like, maybe we have a problem? Yeah, I would say, so there was this one time and it was when my boys were in eighth grade and I, I was a big system fighter, mm-hmm. like, you know, probably because I had moved and I had gone and gone from one type of life to another. And so I kind of was a, I fought the system and I had a son that they weren't playing and he was like in, well, he was in eighth grade and it was just ridiculous, but I'm not going to get into that. But mm-hmm. I remember leaving that game halfway through running home and doing a couple shots of whiskey mm. because I'm like, I can't tolerate this pain for him. I can't do it. I can't, I know how this feels. Yeah. And I remember when I did that, I was like, Ooh, this is opening a door. I remember thinking that. Mm-hmm. And then I, you know, I managed to not like, you know, just to drink in the weekends mostly, or maybe on a Thursday night, you know, I kind of kept it, in, in control a little bit mm-hmm. and until they were all like juniors. So a couple years later, you know, when they were gone all the time and they're teenagers mm-hmm. and, you know, so I would say at that moment, I really kind of suspected. Mm. And, and like a little follow up and did, why didn't, why didn't you like further that thinking? Like, why didn't you like pursue anything at that point? Well, you know why? Because I was like, oh, you know, so this would happen. You do that. And then mm-hmm. the next day you're like, you know what? Yep. Big deal. You just did it. You're fine. Mm-hmm. That was just a moment. And you're kicked at the coach and, you know, whatever. Yep. And, you you know, we have a way of telling ourselves, 
each time something happens, it's like, okay, well, that's okay. I'm over it now. Yep. So I was good at doing that. Yeah. All right. Cool. What else you got, Eric? So this is a question um, kind of about your recovery right now. Um, uh-huh. And something I've, I've kind of been thinking about from like a day-to-day perspective of, you know, what, what are you doing on a daily basis for your recovery? Now, I know it might be meetings, but what else besides meetings or sponsorship or, spon- or sponsoring women um, or, you know, for you reading the big book or 12 and 12, what, what are you doing on a daily basis like individually, to your recovery, you know, where it is right now? Okay. So the one thing I definitely do almost every day, I mean, I'm sure I've missed sometimes, but is I do a prayer journal. Mm-hmm. So since I love writing, what I do is I write out my thoughts and prayers in a notebook. And I do that every day for a half hour. And sometimes I'm nasty, like, I don't want to do this today. And blah, 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 you know, whatever, yeah. God, I'm sick of it. And it, but it gets, it releases that angst that yeah. I wake up with mm-hmm. and it frees me a little bit more. So that is one thing I absolutely do every day for the most part. I mean, I mean I've skipped some, but, um, so that would be the one thing. The other thing that I really try to do is to be honest about things. I think honesty is a huge part of recovery from be- beginning to throughout, and um, I try to be honest, you know, if something's going on in my life with someone, I try to be honest about it because if I'm not, I end up in that resentful mode, which does happen. Trust mm-hmm. me, I don't, I'm not, but I, I do believe I try to stay honest and I try to review my day every day and think, okay, you could have done that better or you should have said that or whatever, but I do try to be honest. I, I think honesty is just a huge part and it, it does set you free a little bit. Oh yeah. All right. Um, you know, I remember in rehab, I just want to say one quick thing. When mm-hmm. I was in rehab the very first day, I'm and just bringing up the word honesty because I remember they give you this book and there's this page and there's like 50 things. Has this happened to you when you've been drinking? And I looked at it and I thought, Oh my God, I do not want to check. I mean, there would be probably 40 things in there that I'd be checking off. Yep. And I don't know what it was, but I decided I needed to be honest or I wasn't going to get better. And I checked off every box that pertains. So. Um, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, I, I love your answer right there. Um, talking about honesty and, and not just honesty, but openness, like being able to open yourself up and, and kind of tell on yourself a little bit is so crucial in recovery because your your sponsor, your network, no, none of us can help you unless we know what's going on, and that and you have to have that level of honesty with yourself and that transparency to be able to receive the help for whatever was is going on. So yeah, that was a great answer. Absolutely. Um, all right, so I have a question about you mentioned in your story that you're you during your like um, using uh, your husband staged some like interventions for you. I want to know, like, what sort of effect did those have on you, like, at the time? And did it did it add to that, like, skepticism of, of like, something is wrong, something's not going right, um, I should probably get some help. But then, just like you said, like, the next day you're like, ah, no, I'm fine. Like, it, it's fine. We had the, we had the, we had the intervention. It's cool. I can, I can keep drinking now. So what, what were the ramifications of those? And like, why didn't you pursue help at those points in time? Well, you know, I think what I was doing was, um, I was kind of appeasing them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, I'm just going to read this little quick thing in my book because it's just, it's called intervention. Perfect. And this is what I say. So some people have a lot of nerve lightly asking me to sit down in my own house. It's so <laughs> frustrating to watch how they purposely surround me in some idyllic holy formation. I've witnessed this whole thing before. In just a few minutes, somebody is going to start with their list of concerns for my well-being. Mm. In my mind, I can already see myself screaming. Are we really going to have the same stupid discussion again? 
quite frankly, I'm playing tired of it. Mm. That's how I thought. Yeah. Like, it was always, you know, I always took it as, well, they think they're better than me. Of course, I'm the bad person. And so I would fight. Like, I knew, I knew I needed to go. And they never, he, my, my, we didn't have professional interventions, but yeah. we had, like, my sister one time, and mm-hmm. then my kids, the last time, they locked me in the house. Ooh. <laughs> I'm sure that worked. And, um, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, it's sad to talk about now when you really think about it, but every time, I, I had this thing where, like, I'm not letting them win. I'm not letting them win. Yeah. No one's winning. I'm mm-hmm. winning them. And yeah. that was my attitude every time. Yeah. Yeah. Our our addiction or our alcoholism wasn't done fighting yet. Yep. All right, Eric, what do you be what you got over there? So I'm gonna go to a question that I haven't personally asked in quite a while. Uh but you've worked the steps, correct, Pamela? Oh okay. Yeah. All right. So um yeah, you know, this is kind of a healthy challenge that uh, David and I have had for a while. Um, so the question essentially is, what is your favorite step? If you had to choose one, and why? Mm. Boy, that's a hard one. It is. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to, okay, it's funny because it really is the first and second. Oh, okay. Um, I don't know why. I mean, I love, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm totally for step four and five. I mean, it's so mm-hmm. important and it. There's no wrong answer. In thinking, but right, there is no wrong answer. But for me, my favorite step is step one and two kind of hand in hand because, you know what? to finally realize you're powerless and your life was unmanageable. I mean, here is this suburban housewife who isn't showering and isn't, you know, is just drinking all day long mm-hmm. out of control. And I, it's something for me that I always need to remember through the five years plus. And um, came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. Well, I like that one because I think it's true every day because you have to hand it over every day mm-hmm. to whoever your higher power is or whatever situation it is or your sponsor or, you know, are you trying to change some, you know, somebody other than you. Mm-hmm. And I was so against help. Yeah. I was, I would do this myself and I'm still like that, but I mean, I have to learn to, to give up the control. So for me, I just, I, because I believed I was insane and I, I, the moment that I said that to my son, I, I totally surrendered that moment. I really believe I did. Now, some people takes later, but I was done. I, I can't live like this another, I can no longer tolerate who I've become. Mm-hmm. So those two. One and a half. See how she skipped right over three? Did you see that? Shut she up, She skipped right over it. She, hey, she didn't choose. She skipped she right didn't, over She, she didn't one, choose ten. Two, but, but she she didn't choose ten, buddy. She was like, one, two, maybe four, five, up, three. <laughs> she's, not, she's not even on your half of the staircase yet. <laughs> it's okay. Yet. It's okay. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a process. You got, you know, you get there, right? You know. The, the resentments right. are they're all <laughs> The resentments are real in this room. All right. Now I'm gonna oh, go, I'm gonna go to the recovery question. So you talked about okay. um in the very beginning you spent about half the year in Ohio and then half the year in Michigan. So how does uh-huh. how does sort of a dual living situation, how does that benefit or hinder your recovery? Like do you have like because I'm sure you had to create a new network out in Michigan and was that difficult or are you still working on that? So how is the dual situation uh, living um, impacting your recovery? So, you know what? Um, the first year when we were up there, the first first year, mm-hmm. you know, like I told you, that was my soul spot. So I was so happy mm-hmm. in terms of that, that we had got a place. But you can isolate up there. Yep. Um, the Traverse City is about 25 minutes um, from my, my house in Charlevoix. So those are the two cities. So I, um, you know, I have to make myself get in a car 
and drive. Mm -hmm. Now there is a meeting now, a couple meetings now closer to me and I do, do go to those, but I will tell you it's harder up there because you know, you're beautiful atmosphere. Oh, do I really want to go to that seven o'clock? Um, but I, I really did make myself at first. It was making myself since then. I, I've got friends up there now. Mm -hmm. So in the program, so I have basically two sober communities Mm -hmm. and it's amazing. Yeah. That's awesome. That's really yeah. cool. Yeah, and that's really what I wanted to know. And, like, that's what I suspected. I, I suspected you that, that you had just grown an extended family um, mm-hmm. in your recovery network. So that's awesome. And that's hard. I mean, yeah. you, you had to build two separate networks in two different places. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you said, what, you moved, uh, you, you um, closed on a cottage, what, after your first year? Was that, am I correct? On my one year sobriety date. Hmm. Wow. So you had to then, you know, when you yeah, so did like this, year half, two and yeah, three. you had to create a whole new network in a whole new place. And that's, I mean, that's hard. Mm-hmm. The one thing I did do was I, the first year I had my sponsor up for a week and a sober friend of mine. And then every year my sponsor comes up and spends a week. So um, we are now friends now, as a matter of fact. We just became recovery coaches and interventionists. We're starting our own business in a couple of weeks. So, um, we have, yeah, we've developed this whole thing. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it, it was hard. You know, when you go into a new sober community, you kind of got to inch your way in. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I was used to my Cincinnati community who had known me since day one, whereas, you know, you go up north. And they don't know you, and you have to make friends, and I have, and they've been amazing. And um, there is actually some old-timers up there, up in that, you know, up in the north that are just so awesome. And it's it's just, I'm grateful that they're there. So, awesome. I'm excited. Cool. Awesome. Great. All right. So, Twitter question. To the Twitter question. All right. So, we're going back in time a little bit here. We need, we need to catch up. Um, so... This is a question that is from at sober underscore ed. Nice. Sober That's an easy ed. one. Very easy. Not not like letters and numbers and all this crazy shit. Um, but the question is that I'll just read the whole thing. The merits and dangers for recovering alcoholics who drink alcohol-free beer. Um, he's saying he doesn't um, because it would be too triggering, um, but other people do. Uh, it makes... The question, wait, it makes me question, so it makes him question the vigilance, their vigilance around alcohol. So I guess Mm. the question here is what is your opinion around alcohol-free beer? I know there's alcohol-free spirits as well as um, wine wine, as now, like when I'm walking through the grocery store. I feel like you're throwing shade at me right now. No, I'm not throwing shade. (laughs) Um, And then, uh, I mean, you could even... You could even take this, like, a step further and, you know, you want to talk about, like, um, you could even say, like, CBD would fall into the same category. But what is your opinion, and this is a group question, and Pamela, you can go first, but what is your opinion on alcohol-free whatever? And, you know, do you, how do you feel with someone in recovery partaking? Mm. Or yourself partaking? Okay, so gosh, you know what? I just went to a meeting where they they didn't have a discussion, and this was the topic. Wow, wow, it was interesting timing. Yeah, you know, some some young sober girl brought it up, and I'm telling you, it went half and half. Mm -hmm. The room went half and half. With um, for me, um, I wasn't a big beer drinker, so I would have no inclination to even do that. Mm -hmm. But I do kind of think. But I will tell you, um, I've done the, like, um, where it's like a wine, but not wine, like grape, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember I, I, my first year I did it, and I, like, somebody poured it in a nice little glass for me and stuff. And even though it wasn't alcohol, I didn't like the way my mind felt mm. with it. I really didn't. I felt, I got almost nervous. Like, I, I don't know. I... For me, no, I will get a mocktail when I go out. Mm-hmm. You know, like mocktails are great. Yeah, mocktails are great. 
they're great. That's pretty much what I stick with. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like if, like, if you were a be- big beer drinker, I don't know if I would, if I would try a, an alcohol-free beer. I don't know because it's not. It's there's the taste. It's kind of a trigger, maybe. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Um, for me, when I did that wine thing, it scared me, and I never did it again. That's what I'll tell you. Mm-hmm. Um, it just made me revisit too much. Mm-hmm. So I'm a mocktailer. Awesome. All right. Um, I definitely have some experience with this as well. Um, I'm I'm uh, personally like I'm, I'm a member of Narcotics Anonymous, but obviously like uh-huh. drinking was part of my story as well. Um, sure. I, I have a little, little over seven years now, but when and Eric was there at my my bachelor party, which was at his beach house in Ocean City, Maryland, or right around Bethany Beach, Bethany Maryland. Beach, Please. Maryland. Can we oh, Jesus. Can we get it correct? Today? Okay. All right. So we were in Bethany Beach, Maryland, and it was Delaware. And Delaware, whatever. Go ahead. And uh, it was my bachelor party weekend, and it was me and my guys, and we were hanging out, and I thought, like, because I I had thought about it for a little while. Um, about drinking non-alcoholic beer, and I, I, I finally made the decision. I was like, "All right, I'm just going to celebrate with my guys. We're going to smoke some cigars and have some non-alcoholic beer." And all of us were in recovery, and so we we did. And like, I drank it, and I I really wasn't triggered. Like, I always my mind before trying the non-alcoholic beer was very conflicted like am i is this going to trigger me is this not going to trigger me how is this going to feel i don't know and it for me personally it turned out to be way overhyped in my mind like my mind was 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 fucking with me more than Uh more than the non-alcoholic beer and so yeah, we just sat there. We played cards and had some cigars and had a had a great night that night. And it it hasn't been a big deal. And I, I've had it a couple times since then. And it it just hasn't the obsession over what it was going to do to me is gone. Like it's not a big yeah. deal. And I've had it a couple times since then. And it's not a big deal. Like, there's been a couple times when I'm, like, hosting a bonfire at my house, and I'll get a couple non-alcoholic beers, and it'll be fine. Uh-huh. I had some right after my wedding, and those were, like, the two times since. And it, I, me, personally, it, it was not a trigger. I do not have any um, uh, judgment on anybody else who does it or if they use CBD. Um Right. It, it, it's it's a very personal thing, but um, yeah, you have to tread lightly. Honestly, I I wouldn't even try it in early recovery if I would if I were anybody. Right. That is definitely my number one. Um, number two, like we were talking about early earlier, um, honesty and transparency. Talk to your network. Talk to your sponsor. Um, see what they think. And at my bachelor party, before I made the decision, I called my sponsor and I was like, I, I don't know, I'm thinking about getting some non-alcoholic beers. And he was like, you know, it's 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 not a relapse or anything. So if you feel like doing that and you feel like celebrating with the, the taste of beer, go ahead. And so I, I made the decision and, uh, yeah, it, it hasn't been a big deal. What about That's you? Good. Cool. Yeah. Um, so, yes. I have drank non-alcoholic beer. Um, I think I think an important thing to remember what David was just kind of talking about was where you are in your process mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. whether or not that's a trigger. Yep. Um, now I'm not saying that you know alcohol is a ginormous part of my story, but it alcohol is not the the number. You know, it's not what really got me to my bottom. Um, it's big, it's, it's a big part of my story, but it's not, it doesn't have the same effect as like other things would like where I'm like, I see it and I'm like, Oh my God, I'm very triggered. Mm -hmm. Um, what are, what, what, what would that be for you? What would be the, what is your big trigger? (sighs) Prescription bottles. Okay. Um, 
probably prescription bottles. Yeah. I have to look at a prescription bottle. Like, yeah. I really want to look at a prescription bottle. Um, also, anything in a gel cap. Mm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Or or baggies. Wow. Like, I, yeah. I have, like, uh, if I see them, I'll get, like, a little bit. I mean, it's like walking around Baltimore. I'm like, oh, I see them all the time. But, like, I do in the back of my head. I'm like, I wonder if there's, like, there's probably Coke in there. Yeah. Like, you know. Um, uh, I was like, oh, there's a crack file. Like, yeah. you know. Like, that sort of stuff. But, yeah. I mean, alcohol, like... Non-alcoholic beer, CBD, like, done both of them. Um, CBD helps with a lot of my, you know, I've talked about this on the podcast before, like, you know, from different mental illnesses that I have to pain to the ridiculous amount of issues I have with my body currently. Um, It helps, and that's great. And, like, non-alcoholic beer, you know, I think I have some in that fridge that's been in there for, like, months now and like yeah. i haven't touched it so like mm-hmm. there's like a point in being like it's not something triggering me so that that in itself is like that's where i am with it mm-hmm. so if like i'm not triggered oh, yeah. to drink like i can taste it and you know be like okay cool and then not touch it and like it's just sitting there in my yeah. fridge for like four months and like i remember yeah. just because of this question like yeah i think we were talking about that oduls in like midsummer exactly and it's still there yeah i haven't touched it um <laughs> But, like, you know, like, that's where it's, like, if you want to drink non-alcoholic beer, and mocktails are the best. Mocktails are the best. The best. I, yep. I remember our, uh, my wedding, we mm-hmm. had, like, you know, oh, yeah. the, his and hers mocktails. Mm-hmm. I think mine was, like, a mango mule, and I can't remember what MC's was. but uh, I had some good um, ones. Yeah. I, I had a palm collins. And yours were good, too. Yours were good, too. I like those. Yeah. Um, But, like, I don't drink sugar. I don't drink soda. I don't drink... All this. Sometimes I just yeah. want something that tastes that isn't water, black coffee, or tea that doesn't have honey, sugar, agave, or anything in it. Yeah. I want something with taste. Yeah. Um, so um, you know, it's nice to have like a different taste. Yeah. So or if you're out at a restaurant, like, or yeah, it's a it's a you know, at the end of the day, it's personal. It's personal. It's where are you in your recovery, and where are you with your triggers and recognizing your reservations, yeah. and like, is this going to trigger me to trick like in my recovery to then be like, hmm, you know, maybe, maybe I can go a little bit further, you know, or like, or does that beer, like if I drink alcohol, my first instinct is to find cocaine. Yep. So Mm -hmm. this doesn't happen. Like if I drink non-alcoholic, that doesn't happen to me. But if I were to get, if I were to drink alcohol, my first instinct is like, I need to get Coke. Yeah. So as soon as yeah. that as soon as, as soon as that impairment set in, that would like me too. That would be my that's first my thing. Is first like thing. let's let's up this fucking party. So like understanding <laughs> where I am in my recovery and like understanding like is this gonna like be a bad trigger is like where it's like yeah you know where am I? And and to talk to sober Ed real quick, you you sort of mentioned in your question how you feel about other people doing it. Um, don't judge other people's recovery. That like that's right. that's bottom line. If that's their thing, respect them. And if that's one of your friends, respect them. And like, there's been some of my friends in recovery that are no longer in recovery, and they've managed to drink successfully somehow. And I love them, and I still hang out with them from time to time. Yeah. And that's their path. That's their um, process. And it. Love, love the addict for where they're at, and give them help when they ask for it. Don't unsolicit your opinion to everybody. Yeah, we're all different. Yep, we're yeah. all different. It's okay. Um, it's not the end of the world. All right. Cool. I agree. All right. I agree. Yeah. So now we're gonna give you. Go ahead. With the drinking uh, mocktail thing and stuff, it's understanding your little voice inside. Like mm-hmm. what? What's it telling you? That's the key. That's a good title. What? Understanding your little voice inside. I like that. Yeah. I like that. That's a, that's, a, that's a good title for this podcast. All right. So now we're going to give you um, your moment to uh, share your website, where people can find you, your book, your link, and now your new business for your recovery coach, if you'd like to, your recovery coaching, if you'd like to plug that as well. So go ahead. Yeah. We haven't really gotten that up and going, but that's okay. Um so my book is called Letting Go of the Thief. Mm-hmm. 
It is sold on Amazon.com and BarnesandNobles.com. Nice. I have a blog which is called TheAlcoholThief.com. Mm. And you will also see uh, uh, stuff about my book on there. I have not written on my blog in a really long time, and mm-hmm. I'm going to start after we get to this holiday. Um, so I, my Twitter, you can follow me on Twitter at Pamela Pesta. Both P's are in capital letters, underscore, or excuse me, Pamela Pesta at Pamela, small letter, Pamela, underscore Pesta. Those are both in small the two P's are in small letters. Mm-hmm. Um, I just I followed am you. Helping. Oh, good. Thank you. <laughs> I have, um, I'm enjoying being on Twitter. I never was on Twitter before. And I'm also helping people. It's kind of fun. Mm-hmm. You know? oh, yeah. um, so um, the, the other thing I wanted to say about my book really quick too is it can be read in two and a half hours. Nice. Or less. It is just, where our minds are at, you know, one, and it flips back and forth from intoxication to sobriety to intoxication to sobriety, and people love the flip. The most is maybe seven paragraphs long in one chapter, so it it gets right to the bottom of what's going on in our minds, and as a matter of fact, the rehab that I went to has bought over 200 for their detox patients through the last year and they love it and the detox patients love it. And um, it's also helping people who aren't the alcoholic mm-hmm. to understand exactly what it is that we're doing. So um, that would be my plug. It's just the chattering mind. It's it's not really a, I mean, it gives you some suggestions, but it's more about, you know, moment by moment, like, you know, first party and you're having a meeting with yourself in the corner and you're watching everybody drink and then you're wondering why you can't and and then you're watching the vodka get poured and then you need coffee and just all your thinking that's going on Mm -hmm. so it's the chattering mind of what goes on and you could you could apply you know remove the word alcohol and put drug in there it's very similar we're all substance abusers so Mm -hmm. it doesn't really matter so um so that's it yeah all right. Wonderful. Well, we would like to thank you for joining us on this very fine evening. Yeah. You guys were awesome. Thank you. You were awesome as well. Yeah. Wonderful we, story. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. How is your weather there? <laughs> uh, it's not so bad. It's it's, it, it's been gray for like three weeks. Yeah. I like gray. Yeah. Same here. Temperature up and down from like tw- like 50s to like the 30s, to, but we haven't gotten any snow yet. Knock on wood. Yeah. Oh, I'm not going to no, do that. Do not knock on that wood. There that's you go. That's fine. That'll, yeah. that'll work. All right. Well, 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 if you're ever up in the beautiful state of Michigan, you can tweet me out. Um, it just got, it was one of the top 10 places to go to on the Today Show in the summer. So yeah. I'm like, sure we're going to get a lot of <laughs> I've heard Northern Michigan is beautiful. I'm sure it, you've probably been to Michigan. I've been. Yes. I, I've never been to Michigan. I think Michigan. Been, yeah. Well, I mean, it was for work. So yeah. it wasn't like I, I got to like see anything. I think I was like outside of Flint. I've been all over Ohio. Oh. So, Southern Ohio is is gorgeous in all the in all the mountains yeah. and everything. Um, it is not so much Northern school. Ohio. Northern Ohio is above like the terminal moraine, so everything's kind of flat and cornfieldy. But uh, mm-hmm. Ohio, Ohio beauty wise, great state. Some of the people kind of suck. Though. Cincinnati is cool. I like Cincinnati. Yeah. Cincinnati's it is hit or beautiful. miss. It can be awesome or it can be poopy. I thought it looked. I thought. I think it looks cool. I like. I like yeah. I like the whole. The, what's, what is Cincinnati? Uh, the Queen City? Is that right? Yeah. Boom. It is. Nailed it. But I love. I went to Baltimore probably like seven years ago for the first first time, and I loved it. Yeah. I thought it was a great town. Yeah, awesome. Baltimore's great. It, it it gets a real bad rap in uh, in publicity's eye and everybody thinks of the wire and all all the horrible stuff but like no when you when you come here and you stick to the right parts of town and you 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 go to the right neighborhoods that's the key yeah but go to the right restaurants we got great food great food great atmosphere great food Uh, yeah underrated town love baltimore all right yeah i would agree so well thank you both 
Absolutely. Yes, of course. Um, and we'll we'll do our sign off real quick. And um, okay. And then yeah. we'll say our goodbyes. All right. Here at Podcast Recovery, we are aiming to expand the scope of support for recovering addicts. Accessibility and convenience of helpful services is paramount to combating addiction. We work to bring the message of recovery to every addict, wherever and whenever it is needed. We believe that a powerful voice of recovery should be obtainable, practical, and at the touch of a button. Every addict deserves to hear a message of hope, and Podcast Recovery is here to provide it. So everybody, thank you for joining us tonight, listening to Pamela's amazing story. Follow us and her on Twitter, Facebook, now Instagram. Um, Yeah, most importantly, everybody stay safe, stay clean, stay sober.